Good evening, everybody. Welcome uh, to tonight's Middle East Center uh, event. This event is to uh, celebrate and to tell you about uh, a new book edited by Hendrik Kretschmar and Paola Rivetti. Uh, the authors are to my right. Um, we are very honored to have uh, with us uh, Craig Larkin from King's College, who will uh, introduce the book in preliminary remarks. Of that will last about sort of 20, 25 minutes. Then each of us, uh, and myself and Courtney Freer, are uh, contributors to the volume, will talk a few minutes, for a few minutes, about our individual chapters before opening the floor to your questions. Um, at the end of the event, which will be at half past seven, uh, there will be a reception uh, outside, and you're all invited. Um, and there are also copies of the book uh, in a friendly price, should you want to buy it. So, uh, let me introduce myself a little bit more. I'm Katerina Dallacoura. I'm an Associate Professor in International Relations at the LSE. Um, I work on the Middle East, and as I said, I've uh, contributed a chapter on the international relations of the Middle East for this, uh, for this volume. I will be chairing the proceedings, as well as, as I uh, mentioned, uh, uh, telling you a bit about my own chapter. Now, before uh, uh, giving the floor to my uh, colleague, I would like to introduce him to you very briefly. Craig Larkin is uh, a senior lecturer in uh, comparative politics of the Middle East in the uh, Institute of Middle Eastern Studies which is part of the War Studies Department at King's College. <coughs> His interest has been um, at the intersection of memory, identity, and conflict. And he's worked uh, on Lebanon and more recently on uh, Israel. His latest work is on uh, uh, the Islamist movement uh, within Israel. Craig has published widely. Uh, in the shape of academic journals and books. And um, he's uh, kindly offered to uh, introduce the volume as a specialist in Islamism, which is really what uh, this book is all about. So we'll take uh, 20 Correct. minutes, uh, 25 minutes, and uh, then the rest will follow. Thank you very much. Welcome. Correct. Okay. I, I don't think you'll have any problem hearing my voice. It's a, it's a Northern Irish um, deep tone, so th there's never been a problem on, on clarity. I'd like to thank you for this kind... Better? Everybody can hear, yeah. For this kind invitation to be here. And firstly, I'd like to congratulate the authors and editors on a, a fantastic book. I must admit, I have reservations when I read anything about Arab Spring or Arab Uprising in the title. Immediately, I want to throw it against the wall. But I'm glad I set aside those reservations uh, to read and to review this book. And I think it is, it is really a, an interesting contribution, very dynamic. 20 chapters, looking at about 12 or thir 12, 13 case studies right from North Africa, the Levant, Iran, Iraq trying to understand and dissect Islamic movements. And I think what was interesting, this is empirically rich, but also it's theoretically innovative, pushing, 
pushing at the boundaries of, of how we research Islamist movements in the Middle East. I mean, this book reminded me much of a, a smorgasbord of bite-sized um, chapters on Islamic movements. Sometimes you want more. It's not really that satisfying. I think, you know, you, you, you take a little bit. It's quite tasty, but you're, you want more depth. And I think that comes from the monograph. But ultimately, from Yemeni Zaidi theology to the, to the Salafis of Costa Coffee, which I, you learn something new in every book. I don't think they're located in, in London here, but in Egypt, I find fascinating and insightful. I think it's fruitful for my own research, particularly on Islamist movements inside Israel. There's a challenge on how we deal within the same theoretical models. You know, is it time to employ new methodologies to really challenge and understand these movements? I mean, is the problem we're so fixated by, by social movement theory and movements that we don't really understand what it means? Um, to, to be an Islamist, or should we question the whole notion of Islamistness, which is done at the end of this chapter? I mean, my own research challenged this moderation inclusion theory, the idea that political participation will lead to moderation. But also, what do we actually mean by Islamist membership? In what way do movements and parties and people interact in this reciprocal uh, relationship with with other parties, and I think what was what was interesting. This book speaks as much about secularists and the Arab uprisings, perhaps, as it does about Islamists. And I think that's important that we need to question those boundaries and question some of those binaries. And that's what I intend to do. I mean, I don't have time to run through each chapter, but I will take some of the themes that I think are most prominent. Uh, that lead to perhaps some deeper questions. A quarter of the chapters were focused, perhaps unsurprisingly, on the Muslim Brotherhood and the Freedom Justice Party in Egypt, the rise and fall of Morsi and uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood within Egypt. But I think we could say, is there a need for more research on, on the Muslim Brotherhood? But the individual chapters, in fact, provide different lenses and different approaches, which are quite fruitful. Maurice uh, Tadros, in, in Chapter 2, probes at the internal tensions within the Brotherhood, that perhaps the Brotherhood had an opportunity to take political power, but at the wrong time. While there's an idea of Musharraka or participation, which was propagated at uh, Fermont, this was undeliverable because there was no consensus within the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood over how to politically govern economic policy, constitutional rights. And they were further outbid by, by uh, Salafists within Egypt that were propagating a much more visible form of political Islam. So in, in a sense, they were caught between an internal tension of leadership and how this would actually play out in the political sphere and the Salafis. Angela uh, Yuja in Chapter 6 also looks at the failure of the Brotherhood, but she employs an economic lens. I mean, she argues that, in fact, their inability to provide a radically different economic vision was part of their failure. And what we see, and I think this becomes, this is a fascinating and original perspective, because much of the of how we understand Arab uprisings was to do with social inequality and, and protest at corruption. 
But yet, once in power, the Brotherhood were unable to deliver anything that looked very different to Mubarak's neoliberal policy. And some of the other chapters question, in fact, the difficulty of Islamists to actually provide an alternative economic model. Um, I think think uh, your own chapter in Chapter 7, looking at uh, the Islamic left in Turkey, uh, as opposed to the AKP, the, the ACM, they have struggled to really challenge the neoliberal policy of the AKP, apart from offering um, moderate iftars. There's a real vagueness of what it means and a sort of Marxist critique of the economic policy, but very little concrete uh, alternatives. Barbara Zollner in, in Chapter 9 looks at the Islamist, uh, looks at the um, inclusion moderation theory, but not only looks at the Brotherhood, but tries to include it in a wider field of Islamist parties inside Egypt. So I think this is quite novel. Um, And again, her assessment and conclusion, I think, is quite damning, that in fact we can see strategic moderation, but in fact very little ideological moderation. And in fact, she argues the moderation that happens does not take place inside a parliamentary debate, but this is to do with intra-political discussions and debates. So there's much more moderation outside of the political process than perhaps within the process. The second thematic approach I would call is a decentering of Islamist movements and a much more relational approach. I think, again, this is refreshing and instead is arguing for a much broader understanding of the political landscape, of the multiple actors and specific locales. Instead of extrapolating movements and trying to understand them outside of their context and how they actually relate with with the political other and how we see the evolution of movements bouncing around within a field of Islamist politics. And Yerom Devron in chapter 15 very much looks employs a relational approach to understand what he terms Egypt's Islamist social movement family. So he's interested in the interaction with their own milieu and the broader trajectories and arguing that this takes a focus of just elites and and political participation and instead we begin to understand how movements evolve and are shaped by other players, shaped by secular, um, how we understand secular actors, but also shaped by their specific locales. I find this very important in understanding an Islamist movement inside Israel. The difference between Islamist actors in Galilee, the Negev, and Jerusalem are very important to understand the social context that is not just to do with an ideological position, but the background, the class, the economic divides, but also the cultural, how culture in each one of those settings shapes the understanding of how we would on how we view Islamist politics. Also, I think there's room for a much more relational approach in viewing the field. I think there's been so much written on Hezbollah, but not much that understands their evolution within an Islamist field in Lebanon. I think that understands the backdrop of the communist, the Shia-dominated communist party, Amal, and Hezbollah's evolution and ongoing engagement with Amal. So much is extrapolated and is written from a very Eurocentric, uh, isolationist approach. Zakaria Freer and Kreitzmar 
also apply this also apply a relation and approach to the field of Islamist politics in Kuwait. And they focus on proto-parties. I mean, within Kuwait, we see the banning of formal parties. So instead, we have organizations and charities that span the religious and the secular liberal um, divide. And the Arab Spring afforded opportunities for cooperation and collaboration between these different parties. And what we see is this happens both inside and outside of Parliament, but there's a real question mark over how deep the cooperation is and whether it is just purely pragmatic and strategic on the part of political elites. So relational looks more at the field, but also takes a focus away from just a party to embryonic parties or movements. But in Chapter 5, uh, Wanda Krauss and uh, Melissa Finn also expands this further by looking at female Muslim activists in Qatar. But it tries to decenter it from the notion of Islamic feminism. In other words, how do we even label Islamist activists? These are female um, Qataris that are influencing through through religious charities. They're, they're, they're seeking not to challenge the state, but the status quo. I think this this is an interesting broadening of Islamist studies that takes it just outside of, of party-centric, but argues what are their role and position and how can they actually influence society. I think this is refreshing because we see a much broader... I mean, uh, Asaf Bayet talks about the importance of studying non-movements, but I think there's a real questioning of what we mean by Islamic activism and how we can actually... and how we can gauge it and understand its mobilization. Thirdly, an important theme is an interesting, I think, trend that that has come out of the Arab Spring, and that is perhaps the deepening of a religious-secular divide that has become even more entrenched. But yet, I think there needs to be a questioning and an introspection of how this actually plays out when we can be very quick to create these ideological boundaries, once movements are put under the microscope, I think it's much more fluid and dynamic how religion and secularism are employed and what we actually mean by that. There's a number of chapters that really question it, particularly Anne Wolfe's chapter on Tunisia, which takes al-Nahida and Neda Tunis, a sort of Islamist and a secular movement that emerged out of uh, the Tunisian uprising and questions how Islamist is al-Nahida. We, we can see the movement actually progressively moving away to, to argue that they are Muslim Democrats and we see a differentiation between religious practice and the political process. But also unpacking that and looking at Neda Tunis and saying, look, religion is also important and they've mobilized and they've used it in deeper ways. In fact, she argues for the need to look at secular forms of politicized Islam. I think this is very true. In fact, ideology and religion are often forged more in strategic interests, party leader priorities and regional affiliations. That It is important to understand how each of these movements and parties mobilize inside different locales in Tunisia. Krautmar and Salem in, in, uh, in Salah in Chapter 13 apply a similar critique to the Egyptian case, and they make a distinction between discourse and policy. That, in fact, it's been quite clear to talk about secular parties and Islamists in Egypt, 
But when we actually look at the speech acts, they engage, they may talk uh, and differentiate themselves and distance, uh, distance the, the parties, but in fact their policies are very, very similar. In fact, we don't see massive difference between how they view Sharia's position in society and economic policy. And I was reminded it's so important when we're studying um, Islamist politics that we look beyond what people are actually saying to what they're, what they're doing. Observation and praxis is, so, is needed. I think there needs to be more research on, on action as opposed to just dis discourse too much. We take too much at, uh, at face value. But I think there's an important questioning also what we actually mean by secularity and is this a very Western uh, perspective? You know, how is secularism understood in the Middle East and how do these parties understand secularism? I think we need to actually question and challenge, challenge that. How much is this a Eurocentric position that's been enforced? Fourth theme, which I think is much like, much like the third one on religious and secularity, which seems to be deeply entrenched, is the whole idea of sectarianism. Basically, it's become the totalizing explanation for all that's going on in the Middle East, all that's happened post-Arab Spring. I was recently surprised by reading my, my young son's um, homework. He's only seven years old, but uh, strangely, he was answering a question about life in the classroom, and he used the word sectarianization. And I was curious, where, where sectarianize it, where on earth did you get that from? And he's like, Daddy, I read it in your study. I thought it was, a, 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 I thought it was an interesting word, and I put it into mine. This is where sectarianize it, you know, that's the danger of allowing your son into your study. But sectarianization is everywhere uh, and nowhere, and I think it's conflated with all types of processes. And even though it's a, a section, I think many of the chapters really deal with and critique the use of sectarianization in, in, in multiple ways. Let's say Vincent uh, uh, Dovrak uh, in chapter 18 looks at Islamism in Yemen and he challenges the notion of just a purely sectarian proxy war. In fact, whenever we look at Zaidi Islam, how far that's re removed from 12 or Shiism. I mean, uh, I recently wrote an edited book on the Alawis of, of Syria, and which is a good way of making yourself acquainted with, uh, with Alawi ideology. And I was struck with just how different, how easy the media portray Shia Alawi, when in fact it's very disputed. And if, if you look at the ideology, they're totally, they're very, very different. But yet we, we easily conflate a Shia crescent with, you know, that, that the Alawis in Latakia are so linked to, uh, to uh, Iranian militia that, that, that might be currently employed there. Also in chapter 16, Ibrahim al-Marashi again debunks this myth by looking at Iraq's Shia Islamists, whether it's um, uh, the Dawah, al-Sadrists, Iski. What we see that even when ISIS are emerging and they remain a threat, it's not enough to unite a, a, a consistent Shia bloc inside Iraq. But yet the narratives and discourse we have is of a very clear sectarian division, but there is all sorts of internal contestation that's going on within Iraq and what it means to be Shia. 
and to be challenging Iranian authority in, in that region. And, and Marashi talks instead about the securitization of a Shia identity. Shireen Shamsuddin in chapter 20 also challenges that by looking at anti-sectarian discourse in Iraq and in fact argues that the protests of 2015 and 16 were very much anti-sectarian but they were underplayed, they were ignored and they were ultimately hijacked by political elites that wanted to move it towards a sectarian conflict, wanted to mobilize around religious emblems. Similarly in chapter 19, Bill Hajj and De Valera um, to unpack sectarianism in Syria. I think this is a very interesting chapter because it's much more nuanced. I mean, it acknowledges a sectarian legacy or perhaps history, but that in Syria it was not institutionalized. I mean, that we can't ignore that there were certain cleavages within the power structure, Assad's Ba'ath party. There was there was a co-option of, of minorities that sectarianism plays it did play a role, but it was never institutionalized in this same way. So the question is, in what way sectarianism has been utilized and who has it been utilized by? You know, if we say it is purely government tactics, subversion of the opposition, is it to do with military funding, <coughs> external polarization, but also displacement and ethnic change on the on the ground? I mean, can we re you know, will Syria be easily reconstituted in this way in once displacement has actually taken place how does a country you know once there's a sectarian logic and rhetoric very often people come with sectarian solutions i think it's very important that we challenge that you know if we only see it through a sectarian lens and frame well then the only options are a sectarian power sharing type uh, resolution which i think is is questionable and finally there's a fascinating chapter by uh, Gillian Swedler that proposes a new concept called Islamistness. I think it's a very awkward phrase, Islamistness, but I concur with the sentiment. And that is challenging these clear binaries of moderate, radical, secular, religious, movement, non-movement, and then saying instead we need to look at the affiliations, identity, allegiance, without treating them as purely Islamist. I mean, this is an opening up conceptually of what it means to be Islamist, and I think that's really important. But I think this goes beyond, actually, a, a, a reconceptualization. I think this can only really be achieved by a new methodology, and I think that's what's interesting, and perhaps what this book might point towards there needs to be more room for different approaches to studying Islamist movements. I mean, the challenge is how, how can we actually get to a new lens or a way of understanding without opening up new methodological trajectories? I think there's not enough focus given in this. You know, there's not many workshops that actually look on the struggles of conducting research on Islamist movements in the Arab world. I mean, I, I could write a book on the struggles of actually conducting research, but I think there needs to be more space and time for academic reflection on the challenges methodologically, which involves more space. And, and actually, I mean, Schwedler actually answers her sort of own questions. In this concept, 
comes from a more ethnographic approach that looks at locales and doesn't just try to codify protests. I mean, there's a growing uh, work on sort of codifying and quantifying. I think there's a question of understanding the locale and the context. I mean, maybe I come from a much more ethnographic approach. I'm slightly biased on it. But it's important to understand Islamists in their setting. I mean, my work on Islamists in Tripoli, Lebanon, it needed to understand the local power dynamics, the inclusion of Lebanese politicians within it, the socioeconomic inequalities that help um, that help justify cert certain conflicts. Similarly, that's where I think that there is fruitful analysis in understanding praxis and not just looking at critical discourse analysis. How do activists and Islamists actually function, work across not just protests, but multiple interactions with society? And this, I would argue, and it's very evident in this book, is beginning to look more at the edges of movements and grey areas rather than just elite-focused uh, research. And I think that also requires a more holistic and multi-dimensional approach to Islamist movements that will really invoke interdisciplinarity. I mean, interdisciplinarity is, is something that we love for research grants, but it doesn't often uh, turn out in, in writings. It's very difficult to get interdisciplinarity into journals uh, when suddenly, uh, suddenly if you're not within those type of fields, it becomes a challenge. I think this book points towards the fruitfulness of a real interdisciplinary approach that, that brings in multiple disciplines to try to understand Islamists, not just within a party-centric view, but a wider holistic perspective. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Craig, for this um, wonderful in-depth analysis of the book and uh, the description you offered to uh, our audience. So um, I will now uh, turn to uh, Paola Rivetti, uh, who is one of the co-editors of uh, the book. Paula is Assistant Professor in Politics of the Middle East and International Relations at Dublin City University. Her research has been <coughs> on uh, social movements, on uh, social and political mobilization, <coughs> and more recently on migration. And she has worked on uh, North Africa and on Iran. And she will take a few minutes to present on her chapter, which is on post-2009 political mobilization in Iran. Paula. Thanks very much, everybody, for, um, for taking part and, and attending this talk. And thanks to, to Katerina and LSC Middle East Center for hosting us and, of course, the contributors. Uh, my dear co-editor Hendrik, and of course to Craig for a very generous yet, um, uh, I mean, uh, properly critical review, which is you know, which is what we definitely were looking, were looking for. And I took a lot of notes. Uh, I won't be able to address them, but definitely the, there is a lot of um, uh, food for thought. So as Katerina said, I will take a few minutes to talk about my chapter, which stands out somehow because it's. Um, about a non-Arab uh, country, 
uh, Iran or non-Arab uh, majority country, uh, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, a country that didn't go through what we usually call the Arab uprisings or the Arab Spring. So why is this chapter included in the, in the, uh, in the collection? So um, there are a few reasons for this. Uh, the first one is that um, the so-called Green Movement, so 2009, 2010 uh, popular uprisings and uh, popular protests that we had in Iran were somehow a precursor of the Arab uprisings. Uh, there are many differences, of course. Um, uh, uh, for instance, the so-called Green Movement was much more focused on uh, political accountability and it emerged as a reaction to um, an election that, you know, um, uh, I mean, likely was, was rigged. But there are also a lot of, um, you know, common points. Uh, some of the topics, you know, are um, overlap. So uh, we thought that it was uh, important to um, somehow also give it a, a more, a, a deeper, if you want, historical perspective. And also um, the, the case of the Islamic Republic of Iran post-2009, so, so the, you know, uh, post-Green uh, Movement, was also a good case, um, a good case study when it comes to the question of how do elites deal with or continue to govern uh, over a society that is deeply polarized after, uh, you know, um, uh, huge repression as it happened in 2009 in Iran. So this is why my chapter, uh, by the way, I shouldn't say my chapter because it's a co-author chapter with Alam Saleh, uh, with Alam Saleh, sorry. Uh, so this is why the chapter is included in the, in the section about governance. So um, our question, uh, as I said before, was basically how, um, you know, how the elite continued to uh, rule over the society, um, I mean, after the repression, and how do you deal with a deeply polarized society? Um, the interesting thing is that after some times, uh, and specifically after, uh, if you want, the most radical actors within the Green Movement were, uh, you know, were, were basically eliminated through different means. Sometimes it was a matter of, you know, just people leaving and seeking asylum abroad. Sometimes it was a matter of, uh, you know, massive uh, en masse arrests. So uh, after this kind of um, uh, you know, phase uh, uh, passed. So the elite started to reconsider the issue of political participation and if you want the legitimacy of uh, criticizing, uh, criticizing the state and criticizing uh, the regime as well in order to find new pathway for, you know, what we can call a reconciliation. Uh, so, um, so we ask what kind of arrangements, uh, you know, were put in place to overcome somehow this, uh, you know, this polarization. So, um, you know, I take here one of the points Craig made in terms of, uh, you know, focusing a lot on, um, uh, on discourse and public discourse and rhetoric. So definitely, uh, you know, one of the limits, uh, the limitation of the chapter is that we do in fact focus a lot on that. But what was really interesting to see 
is that the elite uh, and the criticism that were, um, uh, you know, that were offered to the way in which the state dealt with, uh, with the protests mobilized different legal epistemologies and as well different discourses. So it was not only a matter of, uh, you know, inscribing, if you want, or um, kind of including the right to, uh, you know, freedom of speech or the right to criticize your own government within a Mus an Islamic, uh, you know, uh, legal tradition, but was also about mobilizing, you know, secular and liberal um, legal epistemologies. Um, so, um, the interesting thing, and again, here probably Craig's uh, point is even, you know, more, more uh, significant, uh, is, that signi is, is that interestingly enough, so the Islamic Republic used this rhetoric of participation to kind of, uh, you know, keep, if you want, the society together, but if you want, did not make of, um, you know, this ethos and this rhetorical, uh, uh, this rhetorical, how can I say, this, this rhetorical, you know, tool of political participation a real thing. And I think the way in which, um, uh, you know, social movements and activists are targeted today and the election of Rouhani as well, so under, you know, this kind of moderate, uh, no, you know, more liberal-oriented uh, president are going, I think it really, you know, is a demonstration of this. There is a sort of, um, if you want, there is a sort of uh, uh, focus or there is a sort of movement towards a very rhetorical and discursive celebration of, uh, you know, liberal elements among which is political participation, but this doesn't translate into, into reality. And I think is, you know, what, there is a movement what, to, towards what we can call a sort of nominal defense of political participation, and this is really worrying, and I think we'll, you know, we will probably see the kind of um, uh, implication of this in the longer term in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, um, stability as well, maybe, of the, of the Islamic Republic. So maybe I will stop here. Okay, thank you. great. Thank you very much. Now we turn to uh, Hendrik Kretschmar, who is uh, uh, the other editor of the, of the volume. Uh, Hendrik is uh, associate professor in the comparative politics of the Middle East and North Africa at the University of Leeds in the UK. And he's also an alumnus of uh, uh, the government department at LSE. So he's coming home in, a, in, in, in some way, in being here uh, this evening. Um, Hendrik's work uh, has focused on electoral, associational, and party politics. And he has published uh, a number of different books and articles um, uh, on these topics over a number of years. Uh, his more recent work is on democracy and violence, uh, and he will uh, discuss uh, the chapter on Egypt, uh, right. one of the many chapters that he has uh, um, co-written or written in, in, in this particular volume. Thank you very much. Thank you very Andrew. much, Katarina. Yes. Um, and also thank you very much to Craig and uh, also the other co-presenters uh, for making this event uh, possible. Um, and as Katarina was saying, it's really nice to come back to the LSE where I did my master's and my PhD a long time ago now. Um, I've also spotted a couple of, um, of my own students from Leeds, which is really nice, who've now made it down south to London. They're shunning the north, um, um, but it's really good to see you and hopefully we'll have a chance to chat later on. Yeah, so, so I've co-authored a couple of chapters, uh, one on Kuwait, the one on... Um, 
uh, Turkey and then also one on Egypt. And what I thought I'd do uh, uh, tonight is to talk a bit more about the chapter uh, on Egypt on political parties and the secular Islamist polarization in post-Mubarak um, uh, Egypt. And I'll probably give a bit of context why it's situated where it is and then talk about the chapter itself. And I think what you, what you Craig, talked about, this notion of decentering the study of uh, Islamic Islamist movements is very much at the heart of this particular chapter because it's not explored from the perspective of the, the Islamist actors and organizations in the post-Mubarak era, in fact, in the short-lived, during the short-lived Morsi presidency, but very much uh, from the perspective of secular political parties and their interaction with the field of Islamist actors and parties during that, uh, during that period of time. I myself, uh, as Katarina was saying, work mostly on electoral association on party politics. And again, I'm actually, in fact, I have to admit, a novice uh, to the field of political Islam, Islamist politics. And in that sense, you know, for me, this edited volume was also an entry uh, into the study and it was fascinating to really read many of the other chapters and many of the other perspectives that uh, exist uh, on this particular topic. The chapter is located in a broader section, as Craig already explained, on uh, Islamist and secular party politics. And I think there's three broad themes uh, that sort of permeate uh, th the chapters in that section. In fact, it's the largest uh, section uh, in the book. Uh, and one of these themes deals with continuity and change. More broadly, you know, uh, pre-post-uprisings, uh, um, developments uh, with regards to um, uh, Islamist politics and political parties. A good example of that uh, is Mark Valeri's uh, chapter on Bahrain, where really you s you, he's, he's charting the trajectory of the emergence of Islamist politics more formally in the 1990s and then sort of um, uh, their demise, if you wish, uh, in the post-uprising era. And what is really fascinating in his chapter is to see that this demise did not only um, uh, uh, apply to the, the Shia majority party, uh, but also the field of Sunni, uh, part, uh, Sunni um, uh, Islamist parties, uh, the, the uh, MB affiliate, but then also some of the Salafi parties who were then uh, used instrumentally by the regime, but then very quickly sidelined uh, uh, once um, um, uh, power was stabilized and consolidated. So that's one theme. Uh, Mohammed Masbah, he talks about um, uh, Morocco. Again, sort of uh, looking at um, a, a survival of um, an Islamist political parties and has some very interesting things to say about that. So that's the, the first kind of theme. The second deals more with mid-level theorizing, um, problematizing the um, uh, inclusion, moderation, participation, moderation hypothesis and making some uh, interesting uh, points there. But also, and this ties them back into what we argue in our chapter, highlighting really that the field of Islamist politics, particularly when it comes to Egypt, is incredibly diverse. Uh, and if you look at the discourse, and that's jumping ahead of a bit, when you look at the discourse um, pursued by secular political parties and elites during the Morsi era, is that they were all combed with the same brush. They were all categorized as these are the Islamists without really looking um, at the different uh, programmatic, um, uh, the programmatic differences between these uh, political parties. And again, so the last theme, and this is the one where, where we fall in, is the one that deals with this secular Islamist binary um, that permeates um, uh, 
that has permeated, I should say, popular discourse, but that was also to some extent discursively perpetuated by the secular parties themselves during the Morsi era, particularly at the height of elite level polarization towards the end uh, of the Morsi presidency. And, and what we're trying to show uh, in this chapter is that there is a disjoint between discourse and policy, and Craig already pointed this out quite nicely. Uh, at the le level of discourse, you, you find three practices pursued by the secular opposition. One is the idea of us versus them, creating this binary, we're the goodies, you're the baddies. You know, you're authoritarian, you want to push the country towards uh, an Islamic state of sorts, um, both using the religious but also using uh, uh, the, the authoritarianism um, a prism to discredit um, and delegitimize the Muslim Brotherhood and its affiliate, the FJP, the Freedom and Justice Party, and its allies. Yeah? So there's a clear notion of that. The second is this idea of categorization. As I mentioned before, um, categorizing all Islamists as Islamists, even though some of them had clearly fallen by that point outside that spectrum, if you are uh, quite strict about it, like the Strong Egypt Party, for instance, it's questionable whether you could call them as Islamists, uh, um, or the Egyptian current party, which no longer exists, the same thing. Al-Wasad as well, maybe they're post-Islamists or Muslim Democrat. But for the secularists at that point of time, they were all classed as Islamists, as Muslim Brotherhood split-offs. You know, they were clearly affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, with the nasty guys. Okay. And um, and then the third uh, discursive practice is that of distancing, and I think this is probably the most interesting one and the one that's most under-researched, is where do these parties position themselves on an ideological spectrum? And here what you clearly see is that most of the secular parties, when asked where would you position yourself, say on a left-right spectrum uh, economically or in relation to other political parties in the field, they would either only make reference to other secular parties and position themselves along those lines, or they uh, and would undermine the actual distance that exists with other secular parties, that is between liberals and uh, socialists or leftists uh, more generally, and they would overstate the dis distance that exists uh, with, um, uh, um, uh, with the Islamists. And last uh, but not least, that, that is, uh, that is uh, quite clear. But when you then look at actual policy differences, you come to realize that these parties are actually not that far apart. And that applies, as Craig was already uh, mentioning, and we elaborate on that uh, in the chapter, uh, uh, when it comes to uh, approaches to Sharia uh, in the constitutional context and uh, in the broader political process, but more importantly also to um, personal status legislation, uh, where uh, parties across the secular spectrum uh, were quite happy with the status quo, uh, which is based on a denominational uh, personal status legislation, you know, where each religious denomination, the, the, the three major ones, in fact, uh, are uh, legislating on their own personal status matters. Yeah. So there's a clear distortion. And the last point I'd like to make in this regard is then that given this, uh, these findings, really it's very, it's very questionable whether the binary that is perpetuated between secularist and Islamist actually stands and whether we need to not look at this fluidity uh, of ideological positions, movement between um, ideological positions, and whether that's not far more fruitful than looking through this prism. Great. Thank you very much, Hendrik.
And uh, now we turn to uh, Courtney Freer, who is um, a research officer at the Middle East Center here at the LSE. Courtney's work has focused on the domestic politics of the Arab Gulf states, and she has had a particular uh, interest in uh, Islamism and tribalism. She has worked in the Gulf and uh, has also been uh, at the Middle East Center for uh, a number of years now. Now, may I with, uh, be excused by the other members of the panel and uh, um, uh, do a bit of advertising of uh, uh, Courtney's new book, which is coming out um, in, in the next two, two weeks yep. on the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in the Gulf uh, monarchies. So. Uh, so Courtney uh, will uh, discuss her chapter, which is on uh, Kuwait. And please take five, seven minutes if you could. Thank, thank you. you, and thanks for the, the plug. We're having a launch um, at LSE on the 16th of this month of my book. It's called Renter Islamism. Um, but you should buy this book as well. They're, they of really course. go well together, I think. <laughs> I think it's a good, good companion piece. Um, but so I'm going to be talking about Kuwait. I should mention before I start that this chapter is only one-third mine. It was co-authored with Hendrik and also with Luciano Zakara, who is based at Qatar University. So any difficult questions, I will defer to Hendrik um, or to the absent Luciano. Um, so I think Kuwait is really interesting to look at in terms of Islamists for, for three big reasons. First of all, as Craig mentioned, there's no political parties law. This means that political parties are technically illegal. It doesn't mean that uh, political groups don't still act like parties under the radar. It does mean that there's less party discipline and there's more flexibility in terms of changing agendas and also as running, running as independents, which we've seen especially in this past election in the Salafi sphere. Secondly, the number of proto-parties that work in the in the Kuwaiti sphere are vast in terms of uh, ideological diversity. So you've got populist leftist, national liberal, and Islamist ideological blocks ranging from Salafi to Shia. And so there's a lot of diversity in terms of the political sphere in Kuwait. Um, thirdly, I think Kuwait is interesting in that it is in the Gulf. Um, and we don't often expect to see this diversity and multiplicity of political opinions or, or such a vocal parliament in, in the Gulf. I think oftentimes, too often, we dismiss the, the Gulf as, as essentially being a place where political quiescence is bought off through hydrocarbon wealth, and Kuwait is a perfect case to disprove that. So in the chapter itself, we explain the political system in a bit more detail, and we also highlight some different Islamist groups in Kuwait, uh, including the Muslim Brotherhood, four different Salafi groups, and two different Shia Islamist blocs. So rather than go through all of the details of the platforms and the agendas of these groups, which we do in the book, um, I'm going to talk about two main trends that we discovered when looking at Islamists in the post-Arab Spring Kuwait and how the, and hopefully kind of connect those into what's happened elsewhere in the region. Um, so I think that, that one big trend we've seen in Kuwait is cross-ideological cooperation. We've seen this not only... Um, between uh, Islamists and secularists, but also within the Sunni Islamist sphere. So we've seen Salafis and Muslim Brotherhood and the Muslim Brotherhood working together more than we have in the past under the uh, umbrella of a large opposition uh, network. Cooperation between Sunni and Shia Islamist proto-parties, which is what we call them since we can't technically call them parties, um, has been elusive, not solely due to ideological and doctrinal differences, but in recent years primarily due to the common alignment of Shia proto-parties with government policies, while Sunni, Sunni proto-parties and their uh, secular coalition members are aligned with a more oppositional stance in relationship to the government. I think the second big trend... Um, 
which I'll talk about in more detail, is is pragmatism. Uh, that I think I think that Islamist blocks inside of Kuwait have, have had their decisions guided by pragmatism in the post-Arab Spring era. Within the Sunni Islamist political current, this pragmatism is manifest in the focus on uh, political reform uh, rather than on issues of social policy. So they're talking more and more about things like the need for a political parties law, the need for an independent judiciary and an elected prime minister, rather than things like making Sharia the rather than a source of legislation in Kuwait, uh, implementing gender segregation policies and things like this. So much more on the political reform rather than on the, the social policy reform. And this, this is a couple of things. It provides them political cover so they won't be targeted specifically as Islamists, which we've seen elsewhere. And it also has broader appeal and allows them to win more seats through coalitions, through forming coalitions with secular members of the opposition. Um, and, and we've seen this be successful in the period of 2000, in 2006 in particular, a cross-ideological coalition including <coughs> Salafis, Muslim Brotherhood members, and uh, secular groups did uh, agitate successfully for a change in the electoral law. So I think um, while they haven't really been successful in terms of agitating for, or in terms of a policy change, um, they are definitely pushing in that in that direction um, and have done so largely outside of Parliament. For the period of December 2012 to November 2016, the opposition boycotted um, parliamentary elections in Kuwait um, due to a change in the electoral law, which they felt was imposed unilaterally. On the Shia side, pragmatism has meant something very different. Um, it has meant a steadfast show of loyalty to and support for the government and its policies. Um, and I think this is important in light of growing regional sectarian tensions. This is, is quite a pragmatic move, where Shia minorities are often treated as a fifth column, and where we've also seen the crackdown on Shia Islamist forces in, in Bahrain in 2011. Um, and also there's there's a lot more alarmist rhetoric about the Iranian threat and the Shia threat in recent years. So I think this moving of the Shia Islamist bloc towards the government and towards a loyalist position is something that's likely to remain. What's less um, certain is whether this... Uh, pragmatic coalition building between Sunni Islamists and secular blocs will remain, um, and, and also whether it will be effective. I think that we're seeing a lot of, um, we're seeing some kind of fatigue in terms of pushing for reform throughout the region. There's this idea that people want stability rather than this chaos that's caused by kind of protests and the desire to, to change the status quo. I think also uh, in, in the face of regional turmoil, especially in the Gulf, in light of the, the Qatar rift um, and in light of, again, uh, more fears about Ira Iranian meddling in the peninsula, I think it's it's unlikely that we'll see major change in the, in the short to medium term. But I think that uh, this coalition will at least can at least back some some policy, some certain, some definite policy points, if not uh, kind of changing the agendas of these party of these proto parties long term. Um, so I'll go ahead and stop there. Okay, thank you very much. So I'm just going to take a, a few minutes to um, talk about my chapter, which was about the uh, international relations of uh, the region, and specifically how changes in the trajectories of uh, Islamist movements in the region have shaped the international relations thereof um, in the post-2011 period. So my task, as I saw it, was to, first of all, um, provide um, an overview of the changes in Islamist movements, but sort of broad brush uh, uh, perspective, and then task number two, to see the effect this, this has had 
on the uh, uh, international relations of, of the region. So I, I organized the chapter in uh, three parts. Um, each part discusses uh, a different strand uh, in Islamism. And as I said, this is a broad brush analysis, so very different from the sort of micro-level analysis in many of the other chapters. The first section deals with what I call, for want of a better uh, term, um, third-worldist uh, Islamist movements. And uh, I define these broadly. I place um, Iran, the Islamist uh, the, 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 Republic, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran and uh, a non-state actor such as Hezbollah under this uh, label. Um, I think it's interesting that we tend to uh, no longer associate Islamism with, uh, with Iran in, in, in the sense that when we at least nowadays talk about Islamism, we tend to think about oppositional uh, Islamism, but of course um, the Islamic Republic does promote a particular strand uh, of Islamist ideology. And in this first section, I see, I, I trace how the uh, uh, Arab uh, rebellions uh, have changed uh, uh, that strand of Islamism and also the effects this has had on the region. So the change is the following, I argue. The change is that... Um, the, uh, the effects of the rebellions, and particularly the situation in Syria, has delegitimized the kind of uh, ideological position that Iran and Hezbollah in particular has been able to take, had been able to take that up to that point uh, in the Middle East region. And what this has led to is sectarianization. Um, so we see uh, the adoption by Iran and Hezbollah of a more instrumentalized uh, identity politics in order to make up for this lack of legitimacy that they have suffered as a result of their involvement in Syria. Then the second section looks at what I describe as moderate Islamist movements. And here, of course, I place, uh, under that label, I place the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Nahta in uh, Tunisia. So in this section, I trace the rise and fall uh, of uh, these moderate movements after the 2011 uh, uprisings. And I argued and I showed that this has had a particular effect on the international relations uh, of the region because it has shifted the balance of power uh, in the region. And we see that in the confrontation between the uh, Qatar-Turkey uh, uh, camp versus the Saudi um, and allies uh, camp. So this is the second section. This is the second strand of Islamism. And then the third strand, as I define it, is the, the radical Islamist uh, uh, sort of violent ex extremist strand. And under this I uh, place uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and more recently ISIS. So the argument in that section is that we see after the um, uh, uprisings um, the creation of vacuums of, of power in various locations in the region, uh, uh, of course in Syria but also in North Africa and Libya, and the result of that has been the emergence of these uh, movements, these radical movements which have, th have thrived in the place of collapse of state institutions and the lack of government. And I uh, trace 
although I don't do that as, uh, uh, as I'm not as able to do that because when we were writing, this was still ongoing uh, as a process, but I trace how that has, again, radically changed uh, regional politics, regional alliances and balances of power, but also how um, the emergence of these radical movements has uh, redoubled outside intervention uh, into the region by uh, Russia, by uh, the United States and, uh, and others as well. So this is the broad uh, uh, outline of my chapter. And it is exactly 7 o'clock, which means that we have um, 25 to 30 minutes for uh, your questions. Uh, when you ask a question, please uh, say who you are. It's always nice to know who, the, who the, uh, the person asking the question is and we get to know each other uh, better uh, in this way. And um, uh, please free to address your question either to one particular uh, member of the panel, but uh, also perhaps to, to more than one or the entire panel. Yes, please. Uh, I'm alumnus of the university. Uh, I'm just, uh, none of you mentioned the, why the whole idea of Islamism came up. None of you, I don't think any of you are uh, older than myself to remember the uh, start of uh, the only fund in the room is the question of uh, Sai Pico and the policemen established in form of Israel in a, by the Anglo-American conspiracy. Uh, and that has given rise to uh, everything because if you look at the John May Zimmer in Chicago mentions about the uh, idea of uh, having a curve of homos and the oil becomes so vital that they are prepared to interfere in all ways possible. Uh, they have tried right from the beginning to destroy uh, Iraq, destroy Syria or aid Syria, uh, the, uh, the in case of the case of uh, <coughs> Libya, and now the curdling danger expressed by the American Trump and the Bolton and all that sort of thing. Okay. So the you have not mentioned the reason. Yes. And you can say counterfactual if supposing there was no American and British conspiracy to subvert the whole uh, Middle East section, what would have happened? Thank you very much. Is this uh, addressed to anyone in particular? All of, all of us. Okay. May I uh, take another question? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Andrew Weir. I work for Africa Confidential Newsletter. We take quite a lot of interest in Islamism there, as well as the Middle East. What I'm curious about is there is a, power, there's a global power struggle going on between Qatar and Turkey on one side and the Saudi UAE on the other. And what is the influence of this sort of power block struggle on deep characterizing as, as, as a division between Sunni and Shia in the Middle East. Thank you very much. I'll take a third question. Yes, your name, Hello, please. My name is Shivan Fazil. My question is, um, one of the speakers mentioned the non-sectarian 
nature of protest movements. I, I would have liked to see any thoughts on the recent protests in Basra, the very southern mm. province mm. of Iraq, where um, it was actually very novel in the sense that previously most of the protests were in Baghdad or in the northwest or in the Kurdish region where you could always um, reject. But this time it was from the heartland Shia. Mm. And um, it was non-sectarian in the sense that it was mostly driven by grievances that we have seen in the Arab uprising countries. Mm -hmm. Thank you. OK, thanks. Are you uh, a student here? I'm a, uh, I just finished my Middle um, East politics master's at so OK, thank you. So um, maybe we can uh, take in reverse order. I mean, any of, if and <coughs> any of the questions you want to, to, um, to address. Yeah, I mean, as for the first question about Sykes-Picot and the American, Anglo-American role, uh, I guess, I mean, our task was to, to look since the Arab uprising, so kind of looking from that period, not really going farther back. Um, I, I mean, I guess I can appreciate the ideologies kind of spring from this anti-colonialist uh, uh, sentiment, especially Hassan al-Banna and Ismailia, I mean, that kind of um, sentiment. But, but beyond that, um, I, I guess we were just kind of limiting the scope to, to what had happened since 2011 and trying to bring agency back, I think, to the Islamist parties themselves. Um, as far as the, the Qatar-Saudi split and, and the influence on kind of sectarianism, sectarianization, I think also it has, it, it's, it does have an influence. I think there's more and more this pitting against, kind of a pitting of, of Saudi against Iran, um, which is, is quite obvious, and then the Americans jumping on the bandwagon wagon also isolating Iran. Um, I think beyond that, there's this idea that uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis can and do promote something something called you know moderate Islam, which it's unclear what that means because it seems to be defined in the negative. It seems to be defined as not Muslim Brotherhood um, and, and not in anything wherein religion is linked to politics. So it... It, it'll, it remains to be seen kind of how that will, will ha actually have a, a concrete effect on the ground. But I think in terms of rhetoric, um, certainly we're already seeing the, the polarization in terms of demonizing Iran, demonizing also uh, Shia populations, I think, to a certain extent in, in the Gulf as, as potential fifth columns. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Maybe I'll just pick up on the question on non-sectarian protests. Mm. I think this is very important, what we see in Basra, but... But this has been going on inside Iraq from since 2003. It just hasn't always been reported. There's been protests in Kirkuk for many years that unite across sectarian divides. I mean, sectarian divides don't exactly even work inside the Kirkuki uh, context, but no one really cares that much and want to, you know, want to... Yeah, because it's... Yeah, but, it, it, you know, allegiances and affiliations go beyond the sect and go beyond ethnic identity and also are sometimes based around the city the experience the urban experience of how that city is developed and its relation uh, to oil wealth and similarly in Basra I think what we see is a non-sectarian dispute and which is common as part of the Arab uprisings that this was a protest against corruption against authoritarianism that then became it became mobilized along sectarian lines by elite and by, let's just say, regional interference in that sense. But it's important to recognize that there has always been non-sectarian non forms of protest. The question is why and how do they become sectarianized? What is that process? Who's involved? And, and what way 
I mean, what way can you actually desectarianize a, a, situ a situation? You know, I, I don't believe and prescribe to it's just a sort of lens or a Western lens of understanding it. No, I think leaders and political and religious elites have used those religious symbols because they're very significant and very important. Let's just say even the protests that are going on inside Israel, East Jerusalem, the religious emblems become significant whenever the protests are not just about religion. The protests are going, looking at recent Israeli policy over nationalism, and it's a redefinition of the Israeli nation. So there's all sorts of multi-level protests, but yet the religious emblem and the symbolism of Al-Aqsa become very significant. People gather there for different reasons that are not purely religious, that are, might be non-sectarian. Um, on the Israel uh, issue, I, I do address it indirectly in my own chapter. I didn't have time to develop uh, what I say in the first section, but in that section which is, discusses the third-worldist uh, Islamist strand, as I call it, um, um, I, I, I do trace what I think is the decline of, of the anti-Israel, anti-Western uh, um, impetus for these movements. Uh, I think we see that very clearly. I think we see that there's been a shift away uh, from that focus and that emphasis to more internal regional issues. And the confrontation between Saudi Arabia and Iran has now taken over and seems to be much more dominant than the anti-Western, uh, um, um, as I said, impetus of, of, of the past. So we do actually see quite a, quite a change in that direction, uh, I believe. You mentioned something about the Kissinger and George Cannon. No, because I was looking in, in very few thousand words to the post-2011 uh, situation. Can I uh, just make a, a comment on, uh, on uh, Qatar and Turkey? Um, I think we see a very interesting shift there uh, more recently, uh, which, which I can observe from my perspective of a Turkey, uh, a Turkey, my hat as a Turkey specialist or with my interest in Turkey, which is that um, because of the Syria situation and the multiple issues internally in Turkey, uh, there is a, a, a drawing back from the region. And I think that will affect uh, balances of power within the Middle East and the Qatar. Uh, it will weaken the Qatar-Turkey um, uh, uh, camp in this way because, because Turkey is becoming more absorbed in its internal uh, affairs and is facing multiple issues, not just economic but, but many others. So that is a significant shift, I think, of recent uh, months and even more. So, Hendrik. Yeah, very briefly, because I, I, want to Use the the to, uh, I want to give the floor to other speakers as well. Just coming back to Iran, uh, again, this, the chapter by Shireen Shamsuddin actually makes that point and talking specifically about the post-2010-2011 uh, era and the, the, the fact that there was a very strong service delivery component to the protests uh, that took place in the Iraqi context in the wake of the Arab uprising. And she actually um, pinpoints at, um, the, the, again, the public discourse of the protesters, and that was explicitly cross-sectarian at that point already, and that sort of mm -hmm. ties uh, back in with what Craig was saying as well. Yeah, actually, I don't know what I, what I can add to this, but just to say that yeah, there are a number of, of chapters that actually uh, uh, you know, discuss topics 
um, across all the, the issues that you've mentioned between, you know, size pico um, order, uh, sectarianism, anti-sectarianism, and of course how the um, kind of broader uh, power struggle at the regional level uh, materialize into, uh, you know, local realities and how they get, uh, you know, salience in, in the locales. Thank you. So I'll take another round of questions. Uh, please, introduce yourself first. How the Muslim Brotherhood is viewed in Egypt. Um, most of most of the speakers have um, um, put the Muslim Brotherhood in like a moderate, uh, like that's of course relative to Al Qaeda. But when it comes to how Egyptians view the Muslim Brotherhood compared to the other Islamic ideologies or the schools of jurisprudence, the Muslim Brotherhood tends to be on the far right or the far extreme, mm -hmm. unlike the Sufi, for example, the ideology which is much more liberal. Uh, I just wanted to ask, um, just comment about that. Okay. Uh, there's a question there at the back. Yes? Um, it's you. Yeah. Yes. Um, hi, I'm Tony. I'm um, uh, doing the MSc in the Theorem of History of IR. Uh, I wanted to ask, um, because you mentioned that um, there's been a kind of coalescing of activism with Islamic references around a kind of uh, neoliberal or free market ideology speaking. And I wanted to ask why that is, because in the past we've, we've had examples of, of, of um, movements with, say, broadly leftist tendencies. People used to speak of the leftist Muslim camp in the Lebanese Civil War. Um, there was kind of the you know, talk about the press in, in the Iranian Revolution uh, and so on. So I wanted to ask how this, how they came to be this kind of hegemony of free market ideology amongst business. Hmm. Is there a third question? Okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, hi. Can you introduce yourself for the audience, please? You mean the effect that ISIS has had on other Islamist movements? Okay. All right. Are you asking me? Or, or, or anyone? Anyone? Okay. All right. So maybe the editors can, can address that. Paula, maybe you want to start? Okay, yeah. So um, thanks for all these questions. I will maybe start from the last one, not for it, but just to, uh, to go reverse. So we uh, we have a chapter specifically on, on ISIS. Um, it's in the it's in the section about governance. So we look at 
uh, what the authors, uh, what the author, um, you know, called the rebel governance of the Islamic Republic. And actually, it, you know, the author exactly makes this point that um, the production of stateness on the part of, of ISIS was exactly a, an effect of uh, the pressure. And if you wanted the competition on the kind of, you know, ideational political market with other radical Islamist groups uh, uh, that actually were trying to produce stateness as well. So we have, um, uh, beyond the specific chapter on ISIS, we have throughout the chapters uh, this, uh, this relational, if you want, this relational approach, so reflecting how single organizations are actually in a broader network and compete for um, you know ideological hegemony for popular um, uh, for popularity for electoral support with other uh, with other organizations so we do have that uh, when it comes to the question about market ideology well that's that's a you know that's a one million dollar question if you want it's very neoliberal actually one million dollar question but uh, but I guess it's you know it goes back to uh, the hegemony of neoliberalism as a you know the the, the kind of ubiquitous hegemony of neoliberalism mm -hmm. not only in uh, uh, in, in um, uh, you know, again, in the kind of ideational market of, that we have in the region, but more broadly speaking. So I think it's, uh, it's th this is part, I mean, the fact that, um, uh, you know, Islamist movements and groups uh, kind of, you know, fit into this, uh, uh, this broader, uh, this broader neoliberal shift, uh, you know, is part of this kind of larger and global um, 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 you know, movement, if you want. Uh, when it comes to Egypt, um, the question about Egypt. So um, it's true that we have uh, talked about the Muslim Brotherhood in terms, you know, defining it or at least including it in the in the in the group of moderate Islamists. This is what usually, you know, the scholarship usually does. But actually, in the chapter we have, and and uh, I would like to address two chapters in particular. So the chapter uh, by Maris Tadros that actually I, I think does something that is not that. Um, if you want fashionable, maybe in in the you know um, today's scholarship, which is basically looking at um, uh, the 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 Muslim Brotherhood point, from the point of view of ideology. So we usually uh, say, or this is the kind of dominant approach in the scholarship uh, to approach Islamist uh, uh, groups and movements taking a structural perspective, but she decided to look into ideology, and she's actually making, you know, the point that ideologically speaking, the Muslim Brotherhood has limitation that, um, uh, you know, makes it a more authoritarian type of movement rather than, you know, a kind of more uh, participatory or, you know, liberal or moderate or moderate group. Um, and also when it comes to, you mentioned right wing, you know, being a right wing or being at least on the right side of, of a broader political spectrum, uh, Angela Gioia in her chapter also makes, uh, you know, a, from the point of view of economics, of economic preferences makes this point. So um, how can I say, we are aware that there, there are uh, dominant approaches in the scholarship, but there is a further layer of complexity when it comes to um, not only the perception, um, uh, local perception, but also how we can approach and describe those, those movements. Yeah, uh, just a, 
starting with the first question about the Muslim Brotherhood. First of all, I mean, we all recognize it's a broad, uh, a very broad mosque. In a, in a sense, you have Qutbists in the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, you have, you know, reformists. And you have generational differences. So I think that's sort of the baseline, really. And, um, and the, the reason, I think, why a lot of us would class the Muslim Brotherhood as moderate is um, due to its strategic moderation, more so possibly than its ideological moderation. And that has something to do that the Muslim Brotherhood has taken a participatory approach, even though they didn't want to become a political party, or the old guard didn't, um, and they persevered until the uprisings. But they did always participate with candidates in uh, associational elections, um, and they did participate in national elections, and were, if you, if you can say that, probably the most successful organization from the opposition um, uh, to do so. So I think this, the, this idea of um, moderation is, must be very much linked to its participatory approach in that context. Because also if you look at ideological moderation, and there's some, a lot of stuff on that, you know, it's up and down. Yeah, and very much dependent also on context. Yeah, in the 1980s, you know, it, there, there was a certain opening also ideologically, and then there was a backtracking in the 1990s and so forth. Yeah. Um, so that's what I wanted to say about the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, w with regards to a market, um, the, the sort of free market um, uh, politics of Islamists, I think that's a really, really fascinating point, and that ties in with what we've worked on in the case of Turkey with the rise of the anti-capitalist Muslims, which is really a minority force. I'd also argue that, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, if you look at the Muslim Brotherhood, again, you need to look at its leadership structure, not only at the global market economic forces, but also and how the Muslim Brotherhood is ticks inside. And here, really, it's led by people who have a stake in a capitalist order, uh, uh, in a free market order, yeah, it's 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 big people with big business, yeah, uh, uh, certainly until the uprisings that were sort of very much at the heart of the 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 um, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, and I think that explains a lot also why they found it so difficult to shift away from that, ha although they clearly also started using the language of social justice, you know, they 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 they. They, they went along with that as well. But I think that, that's, that's, that's an important factor. The other point I'd like to make, and that's when I f where I finish, is that you also do have um, Islamist or Muslim Democrat or post-Islamist uh, political forces that are more to the left, and that, f uh, for instance, the um, uh, uh, Strong Egypt Party or the Egyptian current party would, exp would say, you know, we're closer to the Egyptian Social Democrats than to the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah? So even within that category of Islamists, if you want to call them that, uh, you have, you know, differences of, of positions on the political economy. Uh, can I just add a small thing? Um, perhaps a point of disagreement is that the, the, the Brotherhood did not adopt the social justice uh, uh, um, discourse. It was always there. Yeah. Uh, so I think that explains to a considerable ex mm. extent their electoral success. Mm. So the, 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 the belief was that uh, this is, it may be simplistic how I understand it, but, but, but I, I, I am a firm believer of this. The belief was that it was because of the high moral standing of the brotherhood as, as good Muslims that they would be able to address issues of social justice in Egypt and also in other places. That was the uh, 
Um, that was the perception of the brotherhood by others and possibly even by themselves. So the actual internal contradiction of um, uh, upholding a social justice rhetoric and on the other hand having very clear interests in a free market economy were never addressed. But when they come to power, of course the contradictions <coughs> become much more apparent. And I think that explains the very rapid uh, decline in popularity uh, of the Brotherhood. Yeah, I don't have very much to add. Maybe just one comment on ISIS. I think there is a chapter in it, in, in the book, that looks at the creation of a state. I actually think there perhaps needed to be greater clarity that this was not just about state building. This was the declaration of a caliphate, which is something very different. And I think ISIS, again, can't be detached from the failure of the Muslim Brotherhood in, in, in Egypt. I mean, ISIS emergence, when we go back to how ISIS emerged, it's not just out of a, a power vacuum within Iraqi society, but this is also a challenge and, as I would say, an existential crisis within Sunni Islam, looking at centers of power and legitimacy, going back to the delegitimization of al-Azhar and, and a shift within Salafi Islam. So therefore, the legitimation comes through not just about state building, but the declaration of a transnational caliphate that, that appeals the failure of the Muslim Brotherhood to be integrated within a democratic system. I mean, ISIS, you, when you look at their literature, this, this is prevalent. This is part of the discussion that there can be no accommodation with a democrat, you know, there cannot be Muslim Democrats. I mean, it does not work. What is needed is the creation of an Islamic caliphate that is that is outside of, of this uh, democratic project. So I think ISIS needs to be understood in, in, that context, in that larger context of a challenge for, uh, for authority within Sunni Islam. And I think that is going on, right? It's, I mean, I, I, I would tie that into a broader understanding of the Sunni-Shia polarization, which is seen as sectarianism. Well, really, this is to do with power structures and legitimacy and who speaks. You know, there, there is an existential crisis in who is actually speaking for Sunni Islam at the minute, and certainly Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Al-Azhar don't. Uh, and, you know, therefore, you're, it's leading to multiple centers of power and multiple challenges. Okay, cool. Courtney. Uh, I, I don't think I can improve on those answers. So. Okay, all right. Um, so, uh, unless there are any other pressing questions, I will bring uh, this to a close. I wanted to uh, say two big thank yous. First of all, to uh, Nicola Ramsey who is uh, our uh, uh, Edinburgh University Press um, editor and who was uh, great in helping bring the book to production. Uh, she's outside, manning the store. Um, and uh, secondly, of course, to the Middle East Center who have hosted this event. We're very <laughs> grateful to be uh, your guests and uh, we hope that you found this uh, interesting and rewarding and informative. Thank you all very much, so please. Thanks.